Well, good morning, early afternoon. Trust that you are joining us in Psalm 4 as we look at the rest of this. I will be moving rather quickly as we try to get this done in the next half an hour to 40 minutes. Uh, you know, that's a great feat for me to get anything done under 40 minutes. So I will seek to do that. But let's go ahead and ask God to bless his word. And as we look at it and as we honor the Lord this morning, Lord, we thank you, not because we are good, not because we will be good because we came to church or we listened to church. Lord, thank you because you are good. Thank you because you give us answers when we need it. You give us instruction about our life. You give us instruction about peace. Lord, thank you that you are the peace that surpasses all understanding. When we put our faith and trust in you, we can find joy in the midst of any circumstance. Even when stones come crashing down around us, even when there are those that hurl insults at us. But Lord, ultimately the reality is it's because people's hearts are against you, not against us. And Lord, that includes our own hearts. So I pray that we would honor you by listening with our heart, with our mind, that we would give you our, our time this morning and praise and worship you. So speak to us, I pray, through Psalms 4 and teach us through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, Psalm 4 is quite an amazing psalm. As David is responding to personal conflict, his soul is deeply distressed. He's been slandered. People are riling him. His own son seeks to kill him. This has devastated his heart. And like you saw in our live stream on Wednesday, a... Uh, uh, one of Saul's relatives is throwing stones at him and insulting him. And he says, don't hurt him, but he's only doing what God has allowed him to do and called him to do. And even though he's doing what is not right and he's wronging me, maybe God will honor it in some way and do something for me through it. He was speaking to God's sovereignty. We know that in this psalm, first and foremost, David is looking for his approval in this situation from God. He wants to be approved by God. You know, this is how we should respond in conflict and ask that question, are we approved by God or are we trying to be right in our own eyes? Are we trying to win an argument? Or do we want God to approve the situation that we find ourselves? And David moves into verse 2 and the rest of the verses and does something. I hope that you see by the end of this, 
that is very dramatic and different than what maybe you would expect. Somebody that knows that they are right and approved by God, that they go on and then attack, right? That's what we would think. But I want you to see what David actually does. And I pray that it would instruct your heart and mind this morning through what Christ has done for us when he died on the cross to make things right between us and God by paying for our sin. And it's we see this dramatic pause, but David in verse 2 says, Oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? What is David talking about? And the really what we want to see is how does David respond now to his enemies? Because that's what we want to learn to do the same what David is doing. And the first thing he does is help them to see what they truly love. I don't know if you noticed, but in verse two, he says, oh man, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? But he says, but also how long will you love vain words. Honor that David is talking about refers to the honor that God has given him. Look at verse 3. David says that God sets up the godly or God calls the godly. And so when David is referring to his honor, he's referring to what God had given him. God had bestowed upon David a certain amount of honor and dignity. He had poured oil and anointed David and called out David to be his own, to serve God as the king and lead Israel. God hadn't changed that. God had never made that proclamation that I am going to do with David what I did with Saul. So God's honor had been bestowed upon David to be God's man. In fact, that's what godly means, to be God's man. Or literally, the Hebrew word godly in verse 3 means it's uh, hasid. It's a little easier to say, but it's the one loved by God. So it, first and foremost, it means the one who's been loved by God or called by God. And it's the one who also loves God. And it also means the one who loves those that God loves. So you see that? So David is showing that what was good in God's sight, they were seeing as bad in their sight. So David sets up an amazing contrast in verses two and three. The contrast is those that we see that those who are loving lies, right? And they were believing Absalom and all those who were slandering David and they were following that and they were believing in lies and, and empty things and they weren't loving the one who God loves. The main central thought here is what do you love? What do you love? David's calling him out and saying, look, you're not loving that which is true. 
God is true. God is good. And this is who God is loved. But you're not loving that. How long will you love vain words and seek or pursue after lies? By the way, vain words means delusions. Delusions. That means emptiness, nothingness. Basically, David is saying you're chasing after wind. Emptiness. Empty words. And then he goes on to say you're seeking after lies. Whatever it is that you are pursuing in life because you think it will make you happy, it is, if it isn't God, you won't be delivered. It's empty. It'll turn to just nothing. We need to help others see what they're truly pursuing. It's not about being right. It's about showing people what are they pursuing. I don't know if you notice this, but this sounds an awful lot like the gospel, the good news that the world is pursuing lies, the lies of the evil one. Emptiness. People put their love in things that are empty, that don't have any bearing on eternal things. You buy a car today, it's gone tomorrow. You know, tomorrow may be 30 years down the road. It may be five days down the road. We don't know, but it will be gone someday. Still to this day, my unbelieving father, my uh, adoptive father, still doesn't understand where all my cars come from. And I say, well, I have a father that's in heaven that owns a cattle on a thousand hills and he just sold one the other day and he gave me a car instead of the cow. And he just doesn't get it. I said, well, it's okay. God provides. What are our enemies pursuing? Have you stopped to think about that? Have you helped them to understand what they really are pursuing and that it's truly empty? That's what David is drawing to a conclusion here. David wants to show these men that they're running after a mirage. They think they're running towards an oasis. They're going to win the kingdom. And David's like, this is just a mirage. The third thing that I want you to see starts in verse 4. And that is, we should help others see how to respond to God. So, what they love is important, but not only what they're pursuing is important, but how you respond to God is vital. Let me put it this way. David gives us five things that define how we should truly respond to God. You know what David's talking about? He's talking about repentance. He's actually given us a very biblical, unique view of repentance, how to rightly respond to who God is. And the first thing he says in verse four, he says, be angry. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's not angry. It's tremble. If you have the NSB, I, I think it says tremble. What it means is to be at awe with. How do we respond to God? And he's saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to understand you need to be at awe with who God really is. Tremble. 
Did you know that God designed every person in their heart to desire to be at awe? We all seek to be at awe. We either seek movies to be at awe with. We're like, man, did you see that that movie? It was amazing. Or did you see that fish that that guy caught? That was amazing. Or did you see the mountain today? I'm always reminding my kids every time I drive to church, I just sit there and stare at the mountain thinking, we are so blessed. That is amazing what God has created that we get to partake of every day. My coffee, I I wake up and walk outside and have a cup of coffee and I see the mountain on most days, not every day. But to be at awe with, to tremble in fear, in an excitement, to tremble. It's like a kid. Do you know, you remember when you give a kid a fake lawnmower, you know, they see you out mowing the lawn, you give them a plastic lawnmower, what do they do there? Oh, they're excited, right? My kids, they, they love, Josiah loves anything with wheels. That's, you know, anything with wheels. I remember when Dale Stewart gave him a matchbox car, you think that he got gold, right? He's like, I got a car. He was so excited. So I, I said, honey, we're going to buy him. We're going to buy the twins a electric dune buggy. You know, those plastic ones, they have those plastic wheels with, a, with an uh, electric battery, and, and they're just going to love it. They loved it, man. They were so excited. But it only took one day, and they said, it doesn't go fast enough. My brother's, my brother's quad goes fast. I want to go fast. So any good, being any good, responsible parent, I bought new batteries and I wired multiple batteries together and put it into the electric quad. It now goes twice as fast and lasts twice as long on the charge. And Josiah, he's all excited. He's driving it everywhere. He loves it. And I think that lasted about a month. And then he's like, Dad, I need a real quad. He's like, I like this, but I need a real quad. I got to go faster, go faster. So we put him on Kedrick's quad and he went faster and it, it freaked him out a little bit. He was a little fearful, but he li- he li- he's like, uh, I'm done, right? He went back to the other quad. <laughs> he was like, whoa. There comes a time when kids realize the phone that they're playing with is fake. They realize that the, the lawnmower is fake or the quad that they're riding is not a real gas-driven quad. Only God is worthy of truly awesome trembling and awe to fear. Repentance happens in a person's heart when that person begins to take God seriously and they're in awe with them. They're like, I did not know that is who God is. And their heart begins to tremble. They need, people need to tremble. They need to say, you know what? Everything that I've been awing over is just plastic. The world is plastic. I need what is real. I need the God who is, is love. Richard Baxter 
old Puritan guy. He said, if God's threatening be true, why do you fear them? Fear people. If they be false, why do you needlessly trouble men with them, the scripture, and put them into such frights about a cause? If God's word be true, then why don't you fear them more? How seriously do you take God's warning in Scripture? 1 Peter 1.17 says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here on earth in fear. Do we take God seriously? It's funny, but do you notice that in Scripture, there's this funny thing that Scripture makes a point of fearing God, but also taking refuge in God? How can you run to God for refuge, but also be afraid of Him? Isaiah 51, 12 says, I, even I, am He who comforts you. There's rest and safety, goes on. Who are you that you fear mortal men, the sons of man, who are but grass? There's the fear. Or how about Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4? It says, If you, O Yahweh, keep a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. There's the rest. Therefore, you are feared. There's the fear. In the same section of verses, there's fear and rest. Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. There you have the fear and safety again, rejoicing and fear. Verse 12 says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. There's the fear, but then he goes on to say, blessed are those who take refuge in him. There's the safety. You're like, wait a minute. How do I fear God, but take refuge in God? Let me help you realize this this way. Did you know there's not just one threat, but there are two opposing threats. There's the threat of the world living according to your flesh. And then there's the threat of what God can do to those who don't acknowledge him as God. Two opposing threats, God and the world. And only one of them is going to win. That should make you want to think. I want you to think about it this way. There are two of these threats that are headed for a collision. Do you want to be, if you're headed towards a collision, do you want to be in a Prius or do you want to be in a tank? Which one scares you the most? I hope you say tank, if you're being honest. Prius shouldn't scare anybody. It's hard enough getting up to 55 in one. All right, so here's the thing. Let me, let's take it this way. You're coming to a con uh, collision. You're in a Prius or you're in a tank. Which one do you fear? Which one do you find rest in? If you fear the tank, you're going to run and get in the tank and in the tank that you fear, you will also find rest. 
So the first part of repentance or responding to God is to tremble or to be at awe of God. The second thing is to turn from sin. Turn from your sin. Part of the gospel is to tell people to stop sinning. We say, well, duh, we we understand that. When you invite somebody to know God, what you're telling them when you say stop sinning is to say you need to change allegiances. You can't say, well, we're just going to add Jesus to your life. No, you're saying you're switching teams. You're no longer on the team of the world that's dying. You're now on the team of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is life forevermore. God and the world are on two extreme opposing teams. And it's not a game, it's war. To join one side is to literally to turn your back on the other side. When you're saying turn from your sin, David is literally saying turn from this team and go and walk over to the other team. That's what it means to turn. That's what repentance means or to how we should respond to God is to turn your back on the world and turn your face towards the Lord Jesus Christ. This is crazy. David is saying, he's showing them how to respond to God, his enemies. Guys, this is what you need to do. This is who God is. This is what real love is. This is what you need to pursue. And this is how you respond. He's telling him the secret to God's heart. So the first part of repentance or responding to God is to fear God, to, to tremble, to realize what God really is. Another part is to turn from your sin. Now David says the third thing is to think about your life. Verse 4, he goes, ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Now that sounds strange, doesn't it? He's presenting them with a the truth saying, this is how you need to respond. This is who God is. This is how you respond to him. He's given him the truth. He's telling him what to do. And he says, now I want you to think about it. The word translated ponder means to speak to yourself. So David's saying, I want you to go speak to yourself when you go to bed. Now think about it. When you go to your bed, it is the time that you actually stop and you probably think about what's going on in your heart free from distraction, the most. And he's saying, I want you to go speak to yourself. When we share the gospel with somebody, when we're talking to them about how to respond to God, you need to say, you need to think about it. Call them to think. I want you to go to your bed. I want you to think about it. I want you to make a decision. I want you to put your defenses down. Stop picking up the, uh, uh, the sword and trying to defend your lifestyle. And I want you to listen to your conscience. And look at what David says. He says, I want you to ponder. I want you to speak to yourself in your own hearts, on your beds, and I want you to be silent. It's basically the idea of stop. Basically, he's saying shut up. 
You're like, what? Yeah. The idea is stop defending yourself and listen to your conscience. If people will listen to their conscience, they put their defenses down and they realize that what I've been hearing about God is true. God gives us the conscience. God speaks to people's hearts in the conscience that he put in everybody's life. There is more to calling a person to repentance than just saying, do you admit that you're a sinner? People need to be cut to the heart by the sword of the spirit. Tell them, look, I know you have your defenses up. I know that you're trying to defend your lifestyle. But when you go to bed tonight and you're alone, I want you to lay down all your weapons. I want you to be still and think about what God is revealing to you and to be honest with your conscience. That's what David is saying to his enemies. So in responding to God, tremble before God, turn from your sin, think about and listen to your conscience. And number four, he's calling them to true worship. Offer right sacrifices. Verse five, that's true worship. Stop worshiping that which is not true. Making money is not a real sacrifice. Working long hours to buy a car is not a sacrifice. Working long hours to go to school is not sacrifice. Working long hours to make your way up the chain so that way you're uh, the boss is not sacrifice. The world worships many things, but none of them are true. He's saying, offer the right sacrifice. Only God is worthy of worship. To be worthy of worship, there must be an absolutely nothing wrong. Do you realize that? Why is God worthy of worship? Because there's absolutely nothing wrong with God. He is holy. He is just. He is perfect. He is right. When we say God is worthy of awe, worthy of respect, of reverence, worthy to be obeyed, worthy to be loved, worthy to be believed, those are the things that could be said to one degree or another by a lot of good people. But when we say he is worthy to be worshipped, we are saying something much bigger, that he is the only true right, the Holy One. And that leads us to the last response, and that is trust. Show them that there is only one way. There is only one holy. There is only one right. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is only one to be worshiped. And that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling him, saying, look, now I want you to trust God, not trust in all of those people who are living in lies and believing slanderous lies and empty things. No one is saved by religious performance, good deeds, going to church, reading their Bibles, or praying. No one is saved by being a good, uh, being a member of a certain church or religion. No one is saved by good karma. No one is saved by inviting uh, Jesus into your heart. It's actually through a right response to a holy God. There is only one way to have our sins forgiven, and that is faith 
in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8 says, It is by grace you've been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. When you share the gospel with people, do not ever let them walk away thinking that they can earn their salvation by being good. You need to remember there are three parts to faith, real faith, trusting, real trust in the Lord. Knowing the truth about God and the gospel is right. That's knowledge. It starts with knowledge, but most people stop there. It's not about just knowing. You can't have a saving faith if all you have is knowledge. But you also need to agree that those facts are true. That's belief. Just knowledge and belief in something is not saving faith. You, put, you have to entrust your whole life and that everything rests upon what Jesus did for you. That is trust. You're no longer trusting in your life, but in what Christ has done for you. You put all three of those together and you have saving faith. Anything less, and it is either just knowledge or just a belief system or trusting in yourself. You put them all together and you have the gift of God, which surpasses all understanding and will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, it's amazing. David shows his enemies how to get right with God. Isn't that amazing? How many of you would take the time to find your worst enemy, those you struggle with the most, tell them the truth about God, and show them how they can have a right relationship with God? That's what David is doing. And number four is that David helped others enjoy refuge in God's smile. You say, why do you say that? Well, look at verse six. There are many, so the enemies respond and they say, well, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Well, who's going to be good for us? There are a lot of people that say, oh, we're going to be good to you. They're like, well, David, that sounds well and good. That's great, but... And David said this, he said, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. That's a Hebrewism or a Hebrew slang, which means God smile, show their smile upon them. So you show your smile upon us. It's literally, David is answering by saying, it is God's smile that brings peace and joy and well-being to our life. It is his smile that is good. It's nothing you can do in your life. It's nothing, there is none other thing that can bring God's smile than responding to God in the way that David just stated. The source of good and well-being in our life is God's Smile. That's God's approval. David believed that if you have the smile of God on your life, you have absolutely everything you need for joy and satisfaction for the desire and longings of your heart. It will fill your soul completely. Doesn't matter how hurt you are. 
doesn't matter your circumstances. All that matters is that God's smiling upon you. That is David's answer. His answer goes on in verse 7 and 8 that when your well-being in life comes from a false and impotent, powerless God like money or possessions, then you cannot lie down and sleep in peace. But David is because his well-being comes from God. That's why he wrote Psalm. If you want to see exactly what David is saying when he says how you should respond to God, go back and read Psalm 51. And he does every single one of these things that we just, these five things that we said on how to respond to God, he does it in Psalm 51. The world thinks that their safety net that they have in place will protect them. They think that this world offers them true source of power and strength and peace. It will not. It only comes from God. As we conclude, I hope that something strikes you as you think about, this is how David responded to his enemies. He told them the truth about God. He told them the truth about their, what they are doing in their life. And then he invited them to respond correctly before a holy God. And he says, this is how God will smile upon you. I hope that you are enjoying God's smile upon you. In conclusion, I want to ask you a series of questions. Do you believe that God is infinitely better than the emptiness the world is chasing after? Do you believe that God is awesome and can fulfill your needs to be odd? Do you, do, do you believe his wrath is more dangerous than the most horrible human threat imaginable? Do you enjoy the unspeakable privilege and joy of being safe in his refuge? Do you believe God is the Lord and has the authority to demand obedience and the power to punish the disobedience? Do you believe that he is good and that he is worthy to be joyfully obeyed? Do you believe he alone is ultimately and worthy of worship? Do you believe that he is a delight to worship? Are you convinced that God is completely trustworthy? Just one more question. What will you tell people? If you believe all of those, if all of those questions are yes, then what will you tell people? Where is our compassion for the lost, even our enemies? Let's bring it back to compassion. If there is an ounce of compassion anywhere in our hearts, how can we believe all that about God and not try to tell others about him? If David could love his enemies by helping them understand God, can't we much, how much more can we, I mean, we're not right now, still, we are not under the threat of death. David was, he was on the run for his life. And yet he had compassion enough to share the good news of what, who God is and how to respond to God correctly.
Can we do the same? Can I ask us to be compassionate in our hearts that when we see those that are perishing, that our first response is compassion, not they are horrible people. They are all wrong and we can go run to our opinion. But can we run to a faithful and loving and holy and just God that they are going to meet someday? And can we explain to them who God really is? I invite you to respond the way that David responded to his enemies. May we respond to the world around us the same way, with great compassion. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, we were enemies with God and he had compassion on us. David learned to be this way by seeking approval from God. If you're struggling with compassion for the lost, compassion for the world, start seeking approval from God and watch what he does in your life. And maybe, just maybe, you might lead somebody to an amazing relationship with our loving Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we humbly bow before you in awe of your great love in which you have loved us. And Lord, may we realize how distracted by our circumstances we become and we forget how great you are and how much your love has loved us. And may we love others with that great love in which you have given us through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be obedient to your word and may we respond according to the love that you have given us. May we love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength so we can love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.